And this is James chapter 5, and we made it to verse 10, and we've done nine sermons. So I think we're right on track here to get done sometime this year. James chapter 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patient, patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Heavenly Father, with your word before us, we sit at your feet that you might teach us. There are so many things in your word for us to know. So many things. And yet you are gracious to show us your patience and your mercy. To give us your spirit to teach us and guide us. To give us your word that we might read it, see it, remember it, know it, and to do it. And as we submit to your word right now, in our minds and in our hearts, we thank you for the privilege of all that you have done and are doing right now for this to be a very beneficial time in our life. We do indeed come before you today as we ask so often that you will change us as we learn more of you. Change us to be more like Christ and change us, Lord, as you do so that when we go from here, we're different people than when we first started. Thank you for your faithfulness in all these things, and we seek it right now, your help, indeed, as we study this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse number 10. We're talking about an examination of living faith. Not just of faith. We can study all the doctrinal points, and that would be a wonderful study. But this is where it gets practical, right? This is where we take what we know and we do it. You know the book of James emphasizes that. That we're not just merely hearers of the word, but what? Doers of the word. And that's the challenge this book will have for us all the time. I call it the activation of living faith. In other words, we need to apply what we have learned. We need to do what we are told to do. We were back in November when we left off with verse number 9. Just before Thanksgiving, I talked about complaining. And I thought it was an appropriate time for that. Do not complain, verse number 9 says. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The topic, even in that time, was on patience. Verse number 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Verse number 8, You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Verse number 10, where we are today, look at it. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And then there's a touch of it in verse 11. Recount those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing. That the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Is there a difference between mercy and patience? You know, for many, many years I said, boy, they're so close. They seem so similar in concept. I read something this past week that just absolutely surprised me. You know, you learn things, don't you? 
And I, I was reading this um, book, and it said there is a difference between patience and mercy. And I said, okay. I wanted to know. What is it? Mercy is when you look on somebody with compassion or pity because they're in a miserable condition. Mercy is when you reach out to them because they're, they're not well off and they need help. And God is merciful to us because He's seen us for who we are. And I like His mercy, don't you? Patience. Patience, though, has its relationship to being wronged. It has to do more with sin than it has to do with misery. Because patience is putting up with. Or, I don't know what the right word, we say endurance, we say words like that, but God's patience toward us is because we're sinful people. God's patient toward this world. He's not willing that any should perish. It's because He sees the sinfulness of mankind, and our sin is an affront to Him. We have sinned against Him, and His patience is a glorious thing to think about. That He should be patient with us. So, I find it interesting, though there's a comment to mercy at the last phrase I just read in verse number 11. The overall emphasis of this passage is on patience. And that seems to fit perfectly into the context because our our people were studying here in their original uh, day, starting in chapter 5, they were hurt, weren't they? they? Their, Their employers had sinned against them in the context. They were withholding their salaries. As a result, they were hurting. He called for patience. I think that's an interesting combination there. They've been hurt. And he called for patience. We've got a lot to learn about this. I, I know, I just threw that out as an extra piece today, okay? Because I see the word patience and I saw something new about that this past week. But here's what we have been looking at. The examination of living faith is in this book. The first chapter dealt with what does it look like. In the second part of chapter number one showed you the evidence of it. The evidence that it does exist exists. But from verse or chapter two all the way through five we have the effects of living faith. How it changes us, how how it makes us what we are, how it reacts to things. How how the when it's treated poorly, how does Living faith react. We have uh, how it deals with selfishness, how it deals with uh, self-sufficiency, how it deals with self-indulgence. Those are all in chapter 4, early part of chapter number 5. But what I point to you again is the three positive aspects it ought to have in all of our lives. Living faith ought to produce works in keeping with that faith. That, you know, is a key point of James' letter. What good is it to say you have works if you don't show it in your life? That's a byproduct of living faith, is works. You will work. You will show, after all, a good tree will produce what? Good fruit, right? So there is fruit. It has to be there. So that's one thing that must be. And we're not on that topic, but that's in the book of James. The second one, it does produce self-control. Self-control. And I think that's probably a very important one for our generation today. 
I don't know about you, but I read the news and there's not a lot of self-control out there, is there? People are very, very quick to respond in such harsh ways, such negative ways, such terrible ways. May it not be said of us. May it not be said of us. Self-control. That's a whole other topic of the book of James too. We're not going to get into that. That's chapter 3. But here in chapter number 5, it does produce reliance upon God. Reliance upon God. That's key to the whole here that we're studying. We must rely upon Him. We must be dependent on Him. This world is not going to treat us like we would like. We're going to have difficult days, yes. And he talks about, wait, the Lord is coming. And he is, isn't he? Yes. Wait, the Lord is coming. It keeps bringing that up on several points. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming is near. Just keep going. You're going to make it. These kind of things are woven into the passage. But he's talking about patience. Because you're depending upon the Lord. You're depending upon Him. That's where we're at here in chapter number 5. Alright? Chapter number 5. The issue is injustice. Chapter 5 begins that way. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. The rest will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, with which you have with, which which have been withheld by you, it cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously in the earth, lived and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Those are heavy sections right there. That's the injustice of it all. The rich abusing their employees in this context, refusing to pay their salaries, and uh, even putting them to death, condemning them and putting them to death in the very end of verse number 6. The instruction, starting right in verse number 7. Be patient. He's talking to the brothers. He's talking to the believer. Be patient. Easy or hard? Very hard. In this context, extremely hard. Why should they be patient? This is under the Lord's control. Is He not the sovereign one? Be patient. Why? What's the very first thing He says in verse 7? Why? Because the Lord is coming. Because the Lord is coming. Boy, I wish we could live every day with that perspective. Would that change the way you go throughout your day? Certainly would. Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. He says, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, when we study this, and I know a bit of this is review. We have some folks who haven't been with us, so we're catching up all together here. There are several commands that we've been looking at in this passage from 7 right to where we are in verse number 10. The commands. Be patient, verse 7. Verse number 8, be patient. Verse number 9, no, verse number 8, strengthen your hearts. Verse number 9, stop complaining. 
Those are the four immediate commands he gave to the believers in that day. Be patient. Right now, as if you've never done it before, the hint from the text is that they weren't. (laughs) Be patient. Says in verse number 8, almost as if they needed to hear it a second time. I don't know about you, but have you ever talked to your kids and gave them the same command twice? (laughs) Never, huh? Sure. Uh Uh-huh. Be patient. Be patient. Verse number 8, strengthen your hearts. We've talked about that too. That is a command. That's not a good idea. That's not a New Year's resolution, right? That we wait until the fourth week of January and quit. We must strengthen our hearts. We talked about that. If you want to pull that up, that's still on the internet. You can listen to that. Verse number 9, stop complaining. That one, just by saying it that way, what does that imply? You were, yes, you were complaining. Stop complaining. Now, all of those suggest dependence. That's what it comes down to. They all suggest dependence. They are indicators, really, of whether or not you're living out your faith. If you're not patient, if you're complaining, if you have a weak heart, then you're not trusting Him. You're not, you're not following Him. Matter of fact, let's say it's simple. You're not obeying Him. Right? You call that dependence when you disobey? No? Okay. So, we stepped on the toes. Let's go. What injustice does to us? It brings out the condition of the heart. Some of you take notes. I love this quote. You've got to keep this quote. I've seen it for years. I've said it to you many times, but you've got to write it down so you could put it on the refrigerator or something. What you are filled with will spill out when you're bumped. What you are filled with will spill out when you're bumped. I saw that many years ago, and I said, you know what, that's, that's very accurate, isn't it? When we're hurt by somebody, somebody who's in a position above us to hurt us, and they do it on purpose, we tend to retaliate. We, 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 we don't know who to retaliate against sometimes because they're above us and we don't know what to do. So many, many times, and Scripture is so accurate on this, we aim our complaint, we aim our attack, we aim our retaliation at who? Our brothers and sisters. Look at that verse again, back in verse number um, 9. Do not complain. Oh, I've got reason to complain. My, my employer has withheld my income. And he's condemning me. And he's threatening to put me to death. And that's pretty serious stuff. And we just saw that. He says, do not complain, brother, against one another. Because that's where we usually take it first. Those that we walk with, those that are there to encourage our hearts in tough times, that's what the church is for, isn't it? To build one another up in the faith, to encourage each other along the way, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we also complain and we go after them for it. Don't complain against one another. 
Boy, that's a tough thing, but I think he's really showing us the nature of the heart. Because inside we feel dissatisfied, we have personal irritation, we have criticism, we have fault-finding, we smolder, we have resentment, we show antagonistic expressions in the way we groan, even. That's all in the term complain. Rather than encourage the unity of the brethren, we do this. So, all that to set up our context for a very important verse in verse number 10. See, James' audience were hit with this injustice. They were showing instability. They were showing weakness. They were wobbling. They were caught off guard a little bit here and there. And instead of faith, they responded with fear. They were unprepared. They were like a hurt animal. And the next one to reach toward them, they were going to bite off their arm. That's the way they looked. That's the way they looked. And so you read down to verse number 10, and what do you see? As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James wants you to take something here. The audience, he says, take this. Take this. He didn't say, take two aspirin. He said, I want you to take this. I want you to receive this. Matter of fact, it's not even a suggestion. Believe it or not, it's a command. When he said take, he meant it. So let's do that today. Let's take it seriously when he says this. Let's say, what is it you want us to know? What is so urgent, Paul? Not Paul, James, sorry. What is so urgent? What, what is so important for us to take? He says, an example. An example. They, they, there's something I want you to see. They're an example for you. They're a copy of what it ought to be. I'm going to place this under your inspection to look at. I, I want you to look at it with your eyes. I want you to trace it out with your mind. Matter of fact, if you have to, write it down on a piece of paper. Draw it out so people can see what this is. I want you to know this example. All right? I want you to see it clearly. To copy it. And be able to teach it to others. So that they, they can imitate it. So that it would be, be a warning as well. Here's what's interesting about this little word. This word example. It's woven through the New Testament in several places. And here's some of the interesting places you'd find it. Luke chapter 6. Verse 46 through 48. This is what. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them, I will show you who he is like. You know what? That word show I just read to you is the same word. Here's what Jesus said. He says, there are people out there who say they belong to me. They call me Lord, but they don't follow me. They don't obey me. They don't listen to what I say. It hasn't done any change in their life, and they don't want it to. But they call me Lord. He says, but I'll tell you the one I want you to trace out. I want you to draw the picture of this one. So you could study this one. This is the one I'm talking about. He says, this is the one who comes to me and hears me, hears my word, and acts on them. 
Does that sound like something James would say? Yes. That's exactly the same thing. He says, this is the one that I want to show you. I want to set him before you so you can see it. I'm going to draw it out so you can understand. Because this man is like a man who is, if he was a house, he dug deep, he laid the foundation in the rock, and the floods occurred, and the torrents burst against the house and could not shake it because it was well built. Do you want to be like that? Nobody said yes. I don't know. Yes, you're thinking about it. Of course you do. We all want to be like that, don't we? What's that based on? That's based on hearing Christ and doing what He says. That's what He said before us. You're not going to get it any other way. But that kind of a man will. Now, here's the second time it pops up, or the second time I'll give it to you. John 13, verse 14 and 15. John 13, 14 and 15. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. You remember the story? Jesus is in the upper room. Disciples came in with dirty feet. People say, well, that was a big deal. That wasn't the biggest deal. I imagine they had many meals with dirty feet, to tell the truth. But if you read through the context of what was going on there, they came into the room with a bigger problem than dirty feet. They were arguing with one another. They were arguing over something like this. I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Isn't that a great argument? Doesn't it make everyone feel cozy and warm and welcomed when they stand around and say, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest? There is a picture that we never present in either our flannel graph or the artists have never drawn it. When they have the picture of the Lord's Supper, and they always have them there at the table, you know, and you say, no, they were actually reclining, and we've got a different image than that famous painting of the Lord's Supper. But what you don't see is the 15 minutes before it. Because they were going up the stairs to the upper room, complaining that they were greater than each other. I'm greater than you, and you're gr- I'm greater than you, and all this stuff. I picture it this way. You know what children do when they want to be first in line? They're running, they're elbowing one another, pushing each other, blocking each other with their body. We normally don't picture that with the disciples. But that was their mentality. And when they got into the room, of course, when you sit at that table in that certain position, there are places of honor. And if you think you're the greatest, guess where you want to sit? At the position of honor. And I could see them scurrying to that spot. Who's going to get there first? Who's going to get to sit next to Jesus? Who's going to, you know how it worked out. Well, John was there, wasn't he? He was leaning against Christ. Who was on the other side of Christ? Judas was on the other side of Christ. Where was Peter? Well, he had to have been across the table because he had to motion to John to get Jesus to respond to something. And it's interesting when you look at that, they're, they're probably all sitting there fuming. 
That's a great way to start a dinner. A holiday meal. They all scrambled to get to the best spot. And you say, okay, what happened then? Jesus got up and washed their feet. An act of humility, which none of them were displaying. And he washed their feet. Remember, Peter himself actually complained about it. Don't wash my feet, don't wash my feet. There there was a lot of interesting conversation going around that table. But Jesus didn't do it because their feet were dirty, primarily, though they were dirty. It was because these folks did not know humility. And he says, I set you an example. Draw it out on your paper. Study it well. Understand it because I want you to do it toward one another. That was an important lesson that day. I imagine they all felt pretty small as Jesus did that. But he says, that's an example. Hebrews chapter 4 is another place. This one's an interesting scene too. Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 11. Where the writer says, Therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Say, ooh, what's that? Well, it takes you back to the Old Testament again. Talks about the folks in Moses' day. Now, those were a happy group of campers, weren't they? They study their life. Forty years in the wilderness. Complain, 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 complain. All the way through, we, we know how frustrating it was. We've read the books. That's why our resolution falls apart, to tell the truth. We start getting into the life of those people and say, Ah, this is hard to read. Day after day after day after day. They complained and disobeyed. They complained and disobeyed. And we've already talked about this, but didn't they know that God was with them? What was shining above them at night? Pillar of fire. What was over them during the day? Pillar of cloud. What was giving them food every single day, but twice on Saturday? Or Friday, Saturday? Yeah. Friday? Friday? Manna. God was providing for them every single moment of every single day. And they said, God doesn't really care about us. We read their story and we get so frustrated with those people. We read about them. That's Moses' gang in the wilderness. An example of how not to do it. Right? Given an opportunity to trust the Lord and to follow His way, they blew it. So the writer in Hebrews says, here's an example for you. Trace it out. Mark it on the page. This is how you don't do it. It's an example of disobedience. Don't act like that. Don't act like that. So, there's a man who hears the Word of God, who does it. He's an example for you to follow. Trace it out. Put it in your life. There's another example of somebody who heard God's word and disobeyed it. That's an example. Trace it out. Mark it in your life. Do not be like that. That's the simplest way to deal with the word example. To just set it before you that way. As James writes to us in verse number 10, who's our example? The prophets. Boy, if you want to study of somebody who gave God's word and was mistreated for it. Read the lives of the prophets. Wow. Their study... I I can hardly read the book of Jeremiah because of what they did to that man. 
You say, really? Oh, yeah. How about this one? To put him in a pit, a well. It was muddy. He sank down in it. He couldn't get back out. Waiting for it to rain so he would drown. That's a nice story, isn't it? The king was not going to take him out. Somebody else got him out. It's a foreigner, of all things. Interesting stories. But Jeremiah could tell you a lot of things. He was characterized by a title. The Weeping Prophet. We could deal with Isaiah. Isaiah, love his book. You know that. I've spent a lot of time in it this last month. The book of Isaiah. According to tradition, the man that he ministered a great deal to was named Manasseh. And Manasseh is the one, according to tradition, that put him in a log and cut him in half. Wow. The prophets. Let me read you a handful of verses, alright? You can write these references down and look at them. But these are the references to the prophets. Second Chronicles 36.16 They continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 30 In vain I have struck your sons, they accepted no chastening, your sword has devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. Matthew 5.11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Matthew 23, 34, 35, and 36. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Really? Kill and crucify the guys that God sent to you? Yes. Some of them you were scourged in your synagogues. And persecute from city to city. So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's a sad story by the way. Zechariah we believe that's the same Zechariah. That wrote the book of Zechariah. And he had wonderful prophecies. He was one of the most encouraging of all the prophets. He kept saying, hey guys, let's build the temple. The Lord's going to come. Let's do it. We want the Lord, don't we? A young guy, very energetic, encouraging, and all these kind of things. And one day as he's ministering there in the temple between the altar and the... They came out and murdered him. They killed him. I said, Wow. Matthew twenty three thirty seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those whom I have sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. And you say, okay, that, that's the end of the story. That's Old Testament now. What, we're done. Acts chapter 7. Well into the church age now, Acts chapter 7, verse 52 which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That was the question. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Next time, next time we're told to be patient. Next time we're told to continue on with our ministry, even though it's tough. Next time we've been rejected. Next time we've been hurt. 
next time we've been abused, take anything that annoys you, irritates you, wears you down, take the trace of a prophet from your mind and set that as an example of suffering and patience. That's what James says to do. These people needed it in his day. (laughs) They were righteous and they were being abused because of that. But compare, folks, what we call patience to what they lived patiently. That's a big comparison, isn't it? There is a passage or two in Scripture that talks about the duty of a pastor. I take these things very seriously. And Peter, he said this in chapter 5. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ, partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. That reflects on what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be the kind of example that you can trace the image of it and say, that's the way we should live. Wow. That scares me all of a sudden. (laughs) What an awesome responsibility. And you say, well, that's only for pastors, right? Uh Uh-huh. Would you believe that you're also supposed to be an example too? You're supposed to be living the kind of life that somebody else can trace and say, that's the way it should be done. We are told to learn from that example. Why? Why did he say, learn from the prophets? Take it. Why did he tell them to do that? Because when we learn from it, we hear what is told us and we do it. Do it. Without the do it part, you have not completed the job. There's something interesting about the word akuo. That's a Greek word for hearing. It also means not just to hear, to listen, but to obey. I think that's a very important part of it, isn't it? It's more than just, yeah, I heard you. But I have heard you. And I've done it. That's a good word to teach your children. Just look at them and say, Akuo. After a while, they'll get used to it. That means, hear and obey. Hear and obey. Alright? That's what we're looking at here. As we live it, folks. As we live it, we become the example. We become the example for somebody else to trace it out, to learn from the example. You see, there's not enough of that example in this world today. You could say all you want about the fact that this world is just so short on patience and godly character and righteous living and and what it means to be a believer in a wicked world. There's so many few examples. Why can't we be the example? Or do we just give up because there isn't any? That's where it gets rather personal, doesn't it? 
It's not enough just to say there's not enough examples. But there can be one more example out there. And it could be me. And another one. And that could be you. How about if we say it this way? I'll be that example. I will be that example for others to see and to learn from. Remember, this is an examination of living faith. It's the actual activation of living out your faith. Our world needs to see that. Our churches need to see that. And I think you all agree with that. And it comes down to a personal responsibility, doesn't it? That's where it's at. All right, I stomped all over you. Next week, I'll do it again. All right? Because we're still in this chapter, and it's a good chapter for us. It's going to stretch us a lot. But Lord, we need your help. Because when we hear your word, it's now time to apply it. It's time for us to do it. And that's many times where we get scared. We think that uh, people look at us funny now. We're afraid to be different in the world we live in. Maybe our family, maybe our neighbors, maybe our workplace. We're afraid to be different for we fear that they might mock us. They might uh, ignore us. They might even confront us. And it scares us. And we say, Lord, we don't want persecution. We don't want... We don't want that kind of attention, so let us be quiet little Christians and, and kind of walk through this world in an incognito way. That's not what you've called us to. You've called us to be examples, like others have been examples. Like Christ has set the example for us to walk in his steps. And there's so much for us to do. And to do is the hard part, and that's the hard part. We come to you with today, because even if the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, and we need your help. Lord, start your work in our hearts this year. This is a new year, and we can resolve ourselves to fresh things, and this is the next step for us, I think, for us to say, yes, Lord, we will be not only hearers of the word, but we will be doers of it, too. As you challenge us, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. You will not let us down. Thank you for your strength for us. You will never fail us. You will make us to be like Christ. We will stand in your presence someday, blameless and with great joy. We long for that day, Lord. And we know your coming is soon. Until then, Lord, teach us to walk in your steps. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.